Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. And this evening we come to our end of this little study in the book of Philippians. And I think it's just been a wonderful journey, a great, great book that we had here to study. And I get attached to these studies. So when it comes down to the very last message, I'm just kind of groaning inside, just wishing that we had one more chapter that we could study in this book. I have a, I have a lot of trouble just turning loose of this particular study, or really all of them that we, that we do. But I realize that we really don't need to feel that way because uh, we always get to, ready to open up another book. There's another epistle that we can study. And as we do that, as we open God's Word, that excitement and joy returns. It's renewed as we look into another portion of the Word. And uh, there's so much there for us to learn. Uh, there's just so much in the Bible that we can continue to study and it's just a thrill. It ought to be a thrill to you to have the opportunity every time that you come to church to open up God's Word, and there you learn more about the God that we serve. You know, I've talked with people who have said that I want to learn more about the Bible. And usually at the beginning of the year, always somebody comes up to me and says, well, this year I want to dedicate myself to studying the Word of God more. And I really think that that is a great sentiment. It's a noble endeavor. And if you stick to it, you will be richly blessed by it. But I can also advise you of this, that when you determine that you're going to study the Word of God, that there's going to be a lot of opposition to it from Satan. Satan is going to try to keep you from doing that. Now, in our messages on the Lord's Prayer, I've mentioned that the Bible study and prayer are the two most significant gauges of a person's spirituality. And to the degree that you lack in either Bible study or in your prayer, uh, you're also going to lack spiritually. And you can be sure of this, that Bible study and prayer are the two hardest things that you'll ever do as a Christian. And that's because there will be a thousand things that will get in your way when it comes time to pray and when it come time, comes time to look at God's Word because Satan knows that that is so significant that he will try to stop you and uh, ruin that resolve that you have to, to become a more spiritual person. So I think it's really a good reason why that you would want to come to church and, and just not miss our services because here you can come and you can listen to the Word intently and, and we can all study this together and then you can get the strength that you need to go home and study God's Word on your own. So we are then uh, coming to the end of our study of Philippians And the amazing thing about this book, as well as all the other books of the Bible that you study, when you get down to the end, you could just recycle the thing and start all over again, and I promise you there would be more things for you to learn. You you simply cannot exhaust God's Word, and it's like that in every book of the Bible. So I hope you've learned something as we've gone through this. And tonight we're going to look at the very last verse of the fourth chapter, and it contains a, a very familiar theme for the apostle, something that he likes to write about, something that I like to talk about. And I want you to keep your Bibles open to Philippians, if you would, because as we go through the message tonight, we're going to refer back to several different scriptures throughout the book. And so we looked then at Philippians chapter 4, verse number 23, and I'll just read this to you, and we don't need to stand tonight. It says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, as with all other parts of this letter, uh, there's nothing inserted into this book that really doesn't have great meaning. 
Now, sometimes we we look into the Word of God and we may wonder uh, why that certain things are included in God's Word. Uh, For instance, when you come, you know, I was talking about this on Sunday about genealogies and about the book of Numbers and things like that. But you go to the book of Numbers and you start to read all those lists of names. And if you put your finger down on one of those verses and those long lists of names, you might look at a name and you say, well, I wonder what that's for. Or wonder why God put that into his word. And we may not know the exact reason right now, but I, but I promise you with a little bit of study and delving into it, you would probably find the significance of even one name that's in one of those genealogies. Everything that God puts into his word has a purpose. And much less would we think that the Apostle Paul would make a statement in any of his letters that is not really very carefully thought out. It's penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we wouldn't think that Paul would write anything that does not have significance to it. And certainly that's true in this particular part because this is a verse that's really not hard to figure out why the Holy Spirit would make this a part of the Holy Writ because here is a verse that is actually power-packed with meaning. Paul ends this letter speaking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a sign-off that's just written without thought. When we end a letter, uh, most of the time probably, we write sincerely at the end of it. But how many of you stop to really think about the word sincerely when you end a letter? I mean, do you, do you really labor over that when you, when you end your letters and you write sincerely and then sign your name to it? Well, I don't think that we do. And the reason that we don't is because we're just figuring out to figure out some way to get this letter over with. And sincerely sounds as good as anything else. Well, I can promise you this, though. When Paul comes down to the end of this letter that he writes to the Philippians, uh, he doesn't say this because he's just trying to figure out another way to end the letter. Here is something with great significance because the grace of God itself underlies everything that's gone on before in this entire epistle. And if he's going to write to encourage the Philippians, then it can only be because God's grace has fully worked in them all the way from the beginning right down to the end. Now, this evening, I want to take a few minutes and we're going to survey how a Christian is so dependent upon grace. And I want to show you uh, four different aspects that we find uh, of grace in this particular letter of the Philippians. So I think that we would start off with the most obvious one, and that would be saving grace. I mean, that, that's a good place to start. We have a letter here that was written to Philippi, but this was not written to the general citizenship of that city. There's a very special group of people there that have been called out, and they have joined together for the fellowship of the gospel. They have assembled together, and what Paul writes to them in that, this particular city is peculiar to them, and this is not something that could be enjoyed by the general populace of that city. These are people who have really had an encounter with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now, in the first chapter, Paul writes in uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. These are people in the fellowship of the gospel, which means that they've all been joined together because of the grace of God in salvation. In that powerful verse in Ephesians 2, one that we're all so familiar with, Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The humility that the Apostle Paul expresses as we go through this letter is because that he had a great understanding of God's grace. Now, this is a prison letter. 
but we've noticed before that Paul writes the letter without complaint. Paul had really grasped this, just how undeserving that he was of God's grace. Undeserving, really, that he should receive anything at the hand of God. Grace, of course, means favor that's been bestowed by God without any uh, outside influences. It's really favor by God in a spontaneous fashion. Because when God gives us grace, he never takes note of the man. He never sees some kind of notoriety or nobility in any of us because the Word of God says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So God's grace is something that is bestowed upon us in spite of what we are. You see, God knows every intent of our heart. He knows exactly what we're like on the inside. He knows the deadness that envelops our souls and and how that we would not come to him. He also knows that if he left us to ourselves that we would never honor him. We would continue from the day that we're born to the day that we die to curse God's name. There is no cause for grace except that it should arise in the heart of God himself. Now, left to ourselves, we would be under the curse and condemnation of God's law, but God's grace has seen fit to alter that course. In grace, he provided a means by which we could be cleansed from sin, and then he allowed that grace to be appropriated to us. He opened, I mean, he's the one who's in charge of all of this. He opens our eyes spiritually to the saving efficacy of his grace. He, he gives us faith to receive the gift that he gives. In grace, he saves our soul from eternal punishment in hell, and then makes us people that are fit to fellowship with God in heaven. Now, that's truly what Paul marveled at when he thought about God's grace. Paul looked at his own life, and he knew what he was. And you know how he describes himself. He, he says that he was a blasphemer. He talks about how he hated Christ, how he persecuted the church. And if he had been left in that condition, he would not be sitting down writing letters to encourage Christians. Now, he may write letters, but the purpose would be to warn them that he was coming after them, and he might take them to prison or even kill them. And so Paul just marveled at God's grace because he believed this, that that if it were indeed possible that someone could deserve God's grace, he looked at his life and he felt that he was really the most undeserving. He would never deserve it, even if somebody could. But of course he knew none of us can deserve God's grace because then we wouldn't even call it grace. Then we'd be talking about debt. And that's one of the things that makes God's grace so marvelous. It's because he owes nothing to any person. God is not indebted to us. God owes no debts. Uh, He owes salvation to no one. And being the just God that he is, it would have been perfectly right if he had just let us go and then take that plunge into hell. But God has seen fit to save some, and grace is given to some. And so Paul closes out this letter reminding the Philippian people that there is nothing that comes to man on any basis except by God's grace, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is really what caused Paul to live his life in such gratitude. That's why we don't find any complaints in this letter, because he knows that if God should save unworthy sinners, so so undeserving sinners, if God would do that, then anything that would happen to a Christian after he got saved would have to be a step up. I mean, here we are, we're on our way to hell. And so anything, the very smallest, minutest thing that could ever happen to us is a step up because there's nothing as bad as hell. And the psalmist really wondered about this very thing. Uh, if, if you remember in Psalm chapter 73, Asaph was looking at this whole situation and he was looking at the prosperity of the wicked and he started to compare himself to how the wicked were doing and he thought, well, they're getting on a whole lot better than I am. 
And here's what he wrote in Psalm 73. He said, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have no heart. They have more than heart could wish. And so Asaph looked at the people of the world, and it looks like they're doing okay. He surveys his own life, and he see his own life, and he sees nothing but trouble. So Asaph there is looking at the temporal success of the wicked. But then God opened his eyes to see the end of the wicked. And then Asaph goes on and he writes further, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought unto desolation as in a a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. This is the very same passage of Scripture that Jonathan Edwards used in connection with Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 32-35 when he preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that is the difference in saving grace. Sinners hang over the precipice of hell and they're ready to fall in at any moment. And that's exactly where we were. And yet God has delivered us from that terror. So whatever happens then is a step up for us no matter how bad that temporal life may be. But the wonderful thing about grace is that when you properly understand God's grace, there's nothing bad in temporal life that won't actually turn out in some way to be a blessing to you. God has promised that. He's in control of our lives from the, from, from the moment that we get saved all the way to the end. God is there taking care of us. He knows what the end of every situation is going to be. And so God's grace just gives us that hope that God is going to work out everything in our lives for his glory. Now, here's exactly why Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 12, But I would that ye understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. You see, Paul was thrown into prison, but he didn't look at that as just a terrible thing that could happen to him. Instead, he saw the opportunity that God had given him to witness opportunities that he wouldn't have had otherwise and people that he couldn't reach otherwise. And that's why, in the end of the letter, he was able to write in verse 22 of chapter 4, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. There's not one person in Caesar's household that would have been saved if it hadn't been for Paul's prison experience. And that's how the grace of God works. Saving grace takes us out of the pit of hell and takes us into the service of the king. It causes us to sit in heavenly places in Christ. And so the marvelous grace of our loving Lord could not be mentioned as an afterthought in the close of a letter. It couldn't be when you think about what God has done in salvation. But grace doesn't end in salvation. Paul speaks about grace, but of course he's writing the letter here to people who have already experienced the saving grace of God. And so he goes further in in dealing with the issue of grace. And I think he has some other things that are in mind when he closes out the letter with the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Uh, He goes on, I think, secondly, in this letter, to talk about sustaining grace. Now, I want to take you back to chapter 1 again. And do you remember, 
Do you remember the key verse of Philippians? Now, you know that I've told you that there are many verses here that are just little gems and people memorize. These are all scattered throughout the book, just just ones that we pick up and we listen to and or memorize because they're so good. What's the key verse? Philippians 1.6, exactly right. And you know what it says? Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the good work that God begins in us is salvation. Of course, that comes through the grace of God. But the next part of that is that grace will continue to work in us until we reach our final glorification in God's presence. Now, that's what we call sustaining grace. Sometimes we refer to it as persevering grace. Now, we see it again in chapter 2. If you'll look there in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God doesn't stop with our initial salvation. If God should change you at the very moment of belief and give you this promise of heaven, that promise would very quickly fail if God were to desert you and just leave you on your own. What God has done, he's given us the grace to continue with him. You see, as impossible as it is for you to raise yourself from spiritual death into spiritual life, and as impossible as it is for you to turn yourself around, repent of your sins, and trust Christ without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it is just as impossible that you could ever continue on a day-to-day basis living for the Lord and maintaining your relationship with Him if God did not continually supply us with His sustaining grace. You see, we prove how helpless we are just one moment after we get saved. You know what happens after you get saved? The first thing that enters into your mind is all the things that you used to do before and all the temptations that you were in, and it's a struggle right then to stay out of sin. And many of us, right immediately after we get saved, and some of you probably have experienced this, that, that temptation comes and you fall back into that old sin. Now, really, God should abandon us at that point. I mean, we don't keep our hearts pure. We continue to fall short of his glory. And so right then, he could abandon us. Except for one all-important thing, and that is God has promised to give us more grace. See, we've been justified in Christ. Uh, Grace has covered not only our past sins, but it covers our present sins and our future sins. So the grace of God is always working in us. God is working in us so that sin could never condemn us again. And we continue in faith because of sustaining grace. I'm aware that there are some people who really don't like the word persevere, and they they preach against it. They say the Bible doesn't teach perseverance because they say God doesn't require it. But in fact, God does require it. In fact, Paul says as much in the twelfth chapter or the second chapter in verse number twelve. He says, Work out your own salvation. And that doesn't mean work for your salvation. It's not any indication at all that you could do this on your own. And that's explained further by verse 13. But it's simply saying that God is working in us, and God does require perseverance, and that's wrought in us by God's grace. But then also God goes a little bit further uh, than just the idea of perseverance because included in that is preservation. That's the opposite side of it. You can't have one without the other. And so Scripture says that we are kept by the power of God through faith. 
That's what Peter says. And then Paul tells us that that, uh, God is able to keep that which we have committed to him. Jude says that he is able to keep us from falling. And the Lord Jesus himself said that we are held in the Father's hand and in his hand so that it's impossible for us to ever lose our salvation. And all of that is done by sustaining grace. That's the ongoing grace of God that makes sure that we are able to continue in the faith of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul speaks about the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, he has in mind saving grace and sustaining grace. But we go on because there is another type of grace spoken of in this, in this little book. And the third one is sanctifying grace. Sanctify, to sanctify means to make holy. It means to have the righteous character of God. And you will not have the character of God unless God gives you grace. Now, I really don't want to make it a message about sanctification tonight, but it is necessary for us to fill in some of the holes here, to fill in some blanks about sanctification. You see, when you have God's grace in regeneration, and you repent of your sins, and you place your faith in Christ, at that very moment, you're justified from all of your sins. Now, that is a change in your relationship with God. It's a change in your legal standing with God. So justification is, of course, a forensic term, and it has to do with the legalities of salvation. It's where you have the guilt of sin removed from you. But you need something else as well. It's not just that you have that change in relationship. You also have to be sanctified. It's not enough just for a person to have his legal standing changed. He also has to have a new nature of holiness in order that he might be able to fellowship with God. So justification is the change that we have of relationship, but sanctification is the change in our moral state. So in one sense, your sanctification is immediate, just like your justification is immediate. You see, in that sense, you are never going to be more sanctified than you are at this very moment. See, if you were to die right now, there is nothing that would prevent you from going to heaven. You don't have to possess anything else. You don't have to have earned anything else because you have an immediate sanctification. That's the change of your moral relationship with God. But there's also another side of sanctification, and we call that our progressive sanctification. Now, that is a daily thing. This is the the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us more conformed to the image of Christ. So that goes on day after day, and that's really one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us. It's in order to enable us to have that grace, that sanctifying grace, to where we become more like Christ. And so the Holy Spirit works in the new nature that has been implanted in us by regeneration. Well, Paul expresses sanctifying grace in chapter 2, verse number 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look at the purpose of the letter, I mean, you go back, read the thing back through again, go over it all again, and it seems as if this particular kind of grace, the sanctifying grace, is really at the heart of the letter. I mean, this is mainly uh, what's at the forefront of Paul's purpose in writing this letter. If you remember, we talked about how that uh, statement, such as in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, give us some little hints about the purpose of the letter. He says there, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, there is sanctifying grace at work. 
And it's very helpful that Paul states this in chapter 2 before he gets to chapter 4. Now, he uses uh, further things in chapter 2. He goes on and he speaks about Christ's condescension, and that comes right after when he says, let this mind be in, in you which was in Christ Jesus. And the next statements that he gives are this, the, the story of this continual stepping down of Christ to go all the way to the cross. Now, we may wonder, well, what is the purpose of those statements? Because if you're not reading everything together, you're not aware of what's going on, it looks like that particular part of it, that the stepping down of Christ, that condescension, and then a little bit later, Christ's exaltation, it looks like that's just stuck out there. But really, all of that uh, is, 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 has a purpose in being written. Now, by itself, it stands alone as great theology. It really does. But Paul has a purpose in making such statements. It's so that when he comes to chapter 4, verse number 2, he's already solved the problem that's in the Corinthian church. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, what Paul was doing, he was preparing for that statement all the way through chapters 1, 2, and 3 to get to that particular place. Now, remember what we said about that? That here, here is a letter, an open letter that's written to the church. And so what would have been done is that they would have received this letter and they would have gathered all the church together. They've got everybody there. And then they would open up the letter and the pastor of the church would begin to read what Paul says. Now, these two ladies, um, uh, Euodius and Syntyche, Syntyche, they would have been sitting there. And rather than Paul just opening up this, this, this problem that they have with one another and dealing with that issue, just sort of hitting them over the head with it, he's already prepared them when this statement comes. And so he's already s- developed so much theology of the sanctifying grace of God that they could not dispute any correction that Paul would give. And so Paul shows them why it's so important to develop the mind of Christ. Now, that's stated for us another way in Paul's writings in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, another familiar passage. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That, those two verses are about sanctifying grace. And sanctifying grace is one of God's gifts to his people. And so when Paul finishes this letter, he intends that all of these graces would be fully recognized in these Philippian people. So they've been given saving grace, sustaining grace, and sanctifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, fourthly, and we'll wrap up the letter with this, the fourth type of grace that we read about here comes about because of the other three, and that is serving grace. You see, you would never receive serving grace apart from saving grace because there's no one who, who serves God who hasn't been born of the Spirit of God. I mean, many people uh, today claim that they're doing the work of God, but when you talk with those people and they know nothing at all about being born again, they don't know anything about being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that they couldn't talk to you uh, sincerely about being saved by the grace of God, and so they don't serve God, they don't do God's work because they're enemies. They're, they're not a son and they're not a servant. And then serving grace is also after sustaining grace because one moment after you're saved, if you didn't have saving grace, you wouldn't be serving Christ. You'd go off on your own and you'd 
put into place your own plan of service rather than God's service. So you need God's grace to sustain you before you could ever get to the place that you can serve him. And then serving grace also comes after sanctifying grace. Now, your initial sanctification, which affects your moral state, which we're talking about a moment ago, that is absolutely necessary. If you didn't have that, you would serve self rather than serving God. And then this grace is also subsequent to, or at least it is in conjunction with, our progressive sanctification, because this is all about the the practical outworking of the Spirit in our lives so that we come to the place that we will serve God. The more that you know about God, the more that you've been sanctified by God, it's just a natural outcome, the more willing that you are to serve Him. So where do we find serving grace in the letter? Well, I've already referred to it in one place where Paul said that everything that happened to him happened because of the furtherance of the gospel. You see, Paul didn't go to prison just to languish there. I mean, it wasn't his plan to take a vacation in prison. When he got there, God was going to put him to work preaching the gospel, only he's just going to preach it in a different venue. And then we also see it in the general expression of the direction of Paul's life. He says in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as, also, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So how is living Christ? Well, it could only be by continual service. See, Christ isn't here in the flesh, and so he left us here and gave us the charge to do the work that he would do if he were here. And his work is a singular work. You remember, uh, Jesus very clearly stated his purpose in Luke 19.10. He said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, that seems like a very simple statement, and we might be content to leave this whole thing right here at the salvation of the soul that we just go and get people saved. Now, that is a wonderful thing. I'm glad that we're we're talking about getting our visitation program ramped up again and, and getting people out visiting for the Lord and talking to people about salvation. That's a great thing. But salvation is really more comprehensive. or or grace in this sense, or the purpose of what we've been put here to do is more comprehensive than just the idea of getting people saved. Because the bigger picture here is that we bring people into God's kingdom, and as we do, God is glorified through that process. You see, what happens when when you bring somebody into God's kingdom? Well, they become servants of the king. I mean, that's the design for them. So there is no other purpose for us. I mean, our purpose in being here in the world is not our happiness, and it's not our success. It's not health and our prosperity and all of those things, despite what the greedy TV preacher says. But salvation's goal is the kingdom of God. It's to make more citizens of the kingdom so they'll serve the king and give all glory to him. Now, not coincidentally, that issue is also addressed by Paul in the Philippian letter. You remember the sermons about citizenship, citizenship in God's kingdom. So he states this, and you find it in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where it says there, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But he also speaks about it in the end of the third chapter when he talks about citizenship in this way. He says, for our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So serving grace is what enables us to do everything to the glory of God, and we do this by advancing God's kingdom purposes. And then this type of grace is also demonstrated in chapter 4, verse number 13. He says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Well, what things would Paul be talking about? Is Paul using Christ to accomplish Paul's purposes? Well, that would be like the football player analogy that I gave you that uses Philippians 4.13 in order to win football games. And the idea is, well, I'm a winner. I can do all things in Christ. I'm a winner in life because of Jesus. I don't think that's what Paul meant at all. What Paul meant was that he was not looking at his personal accomplishments only except when they coincided with God's eternal purposes. Now, I hope you see how all that fits together because for him to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he had to have come to the place where his purpose was God's purpose and God's purpose was his purpose. And the only purpose that God would have to give us grace is that we would fulfill his purposes. That's what he gives us grace to do. So we don't look for grace in places like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You see, you can't talk about grace in that kind of a gospel because it centers in the wrong thing. It centers in you instead of in God. You receive God's grace for God's glory. Now, maybe you missed the uh, the obvious thing here, but you receive serving grace for what? To serve. That's the purpose of it. And if it's for anything else, if it's for anything other than serving God, then you miss the purpose of God's grace. So we find grace is spoken all throughout this Philippian letter. There's saving grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace, and serving grace. And so when Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, it's not just a sign-off. He means that if you have received the saving grace of God, then you can be sure of this. God is going to give you all the other graces that go with it. Now, I want to make one more point before we end the letter this evening. And I would certainly be remiss if I didn't say this. And that is that you cannot take your focus off of Jesus Christ in this letter. He is so often spoken of throughout Philippians that the entire focus of Paul is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the beginning, in the middle, and the end, you find Jesus. Martin Luther made this statement, and I've made it the final statement for your listening sheet tonight. He said, I know no God but Jesus Christ. Now, we might ask a question. Was Martin Luther a Trinitarian? Well, of course he was. He, he wasn't a oneness Pentecostal, that's for sure. He was a Trinitarian. And what he meant by this is that you cannot know God except through Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he and the Father are one, and so if you are to know the Father, you must also know him. So we have a letter here that is packed with Christ. He's mentioned more than 40 times throughout the letter, so that breaks down to an average of once every two to three verses Paul is speaking about Christ. Now, I'm going to show you an example of this as we close tonight. If you'll turn over to the first chapter, we're going to read just a few verses here. And these are really representative of the entire book. And we'll look at the first 11 verses, and and it might be a good exercise for you in those 11 verses to underline the references to Christ. So let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, 
which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, which he, uh, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Now, I counted there seven times in 11 verses that Paul mentions Christ. And that's typical all the way throughout the letter. And so it's no wonder that he comes down to verse 21 in that first chapter, and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So you have Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, day of Jesus Christ, bowels of Jesus Christ, spirit of Jesus Christ, and on and on you go till you come down to the very last verse of the entire letter, and he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So saving grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace, and serving grace. And so we say with the Apostle Paul, to God be the glory for the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your blessings upon us. And we're thankful that we can stand and talk about the marvelous grace of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for just the knowing Christ and the the great blessing that it is to us to uh, have a Savior who cares for us, to save us by your grace, then sustain us by your grace, to sanctify us by grace, to make us more like you and then to give us the wonderful opportunity of serving you and the grace even that we need to do that. So we thank you, Lord, for this. Bless our people tonight. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.